The message I prepared this morning, I prepared uh, with always with prayer and asking the leadership of God uh, to say that which every one of us needs to hear. But I had uh, particularly in my mind the high school seniors, uh, now uh, devoid of the opportunity that many of us had uh, to have a baccalaureate service and uh, the spiritual influence that came to us through that event. I wanted to try to say something that hopefully will be of some uh, encouragement to them at this pivotal time in uh, their hearts and in their lives. And also a word uh, for you and for me in making major decisions about our lives. It, uh, it is interesting to notice in the Sermon on the Mount the number of subjects that Jesus uh, touches upon. He goes up to the top of this mountain and all these people are coming along with him and he sits down up there and the 5th, 6th, and 7th chapters of uh, the Gospel of Matthew, he begins to talk about a variety of things. He begins first with the statement of values about, uh, about uh, different, about different uh, truths. What I want to do, uh, I want to read you from a new translation of the New Testament by Eugene Peterson which is an excellent translation uh, entitled The Message is if you want to get a copy of this and if, uh, and if you're interested in studying and reading the Bible, I, I want to urge you to get one. Uh, let me read you his translation uh, and interpretation. He is an excellent scholar, pastor, and professor reading the, the Beatitudes, or at least a portion of them. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. And this is what he said. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel your loss, you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just as you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart, put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. Isn't that good? Well, Jesus goes on then in the Sermon on the Mount to talk about a great number uh, of subjects. He talks about um, religion. A good bit about religion. It differentiates between 
external religion, an internal religion, a religion that's show and religion that's real, religion that's words and religion that's deeds. A good bit in, in here about, about religion, about values, about food, very practical statements about food, about uh, clothes, about money, about sex, marriage, prayer, murder, hate, lust, adultery, judging, personal relationships, anxiety, and its causes. In fact, it's interesting in the sixth chapter uh, of Matthew, in one portion of the Sermon on the Mount, in just verses 24 through 34, he uses the word anxious five times. And the word anxious really comes from a word that means to choke when you feel that tightness in your throat, anxiety, choking, tense. Five times he uses that one word. in, uh, in that brief uh, passage of Scripture. What I want to do this morning is I want to pick, out, uh, pick up two statements and a story from Jesus. One statement is the 24th verse of the 6th chapter. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot ser- serve God and money, God and man, God and things, God and mammon. You just can't have two masters. And then the 33rd verse, when he says, the King James translates it, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things, these things that you have been concerned about, anxious about, apprehensive about food and clothing and uh, the length of your life and all of these things that are legitimate concerns. But he says when you put those things first, rather than putting God first, you get life all fouled up and all messed up and all out of order. Seek first the kingdom of God and all of those things, he knows you have need of those things. And all of those things that he knows you need, he will give you. What he's talking about here are some basic, simple, if not simplistic, ideas about how to live a successful life. One of the things he maximizes is the importance of not externalizing religion at the expense of internalizing it. The tragedy of externalizing your religion, making it a matter of show or words or things you say rather than experiential faith, having something as a part of a relationship rather than just agreement with a set of rules. Precepts, commands, a personal relationship, the peril of externalizing religion, and the peril of glamorizing things. Glamorizing things, the tyranny of things, the love of money. Jesus warns about that a number of times, not only in the Sermon on the Mount, but throughout his ministry. And the scripture talks about the deceitfulness of riches, not the evil of them. So much because riches can be the the basis of so much good. My soul, think of all of the tremendous things that have happened in this community and that are happening in this community because people 
individuals and organizations and institutions and corporations and companies give their money to help others. Give their money to the cause of Christ and to the cause of human need. Jesus never says there's anything wrong with owning money. What he's warning us against is when that money or those things begin to own us. The tragedy is that so many of the things we buy to serve us, we end up serving. We inadvertently sell ourselves into slavery to things. And that's the deceitfulness of riches. And beware of that said Jesus. Nothing wrong with having money as long as we have the money. It's when it begins to have us and own us and control us and direct us and we begin to serve it rather than it serving us. What what you see here in, in the Sermon on the Mount is is an ongoing discussion that has been going on for thousands of years and will continue going on. It goes back even to the the basic argument between Socrates and Homer. The argument between philosophy and force or power. The argument between reason, a la Socrates, and passion, Homer. The glorification of the search for truth and justice and the development of the soul over against the search for riches... And fame and the awesome use of power. So we have even in the contrast between the philosophies and the writings of Socrates and Homer, the same thing Jesus is saying here. You've got to make a choice. A choice of values, a choice of God or gods. Choose you this day which God you will serve, the God of external religion, the God of the trivial, the God of things, the God of money, or the God of a personal relationship, the God of grace, the God of glory, the God of eternal value inculcated in human beings. He also speaks about the danger of dividing and minimizing the divine. He's saying you just cannot serve two masters. You cannot do it. There is more intrinsic difference between the number one and the number two than between the number two and two billion. There is more intrinsic difference between one and two than between two and a billion. Qualitative difference between those two, but not a quantitative difference. For example, if you have one God 
you're a monotheist, one God. If you have two gods, you're a polytheist. And whether you have two gods or 20 gods or 500 gods, you're still polytheistic in your concept of the divine. There's more intrinsic difference between one and two. You have one wife, one husband. You are monogamous. If you have two wives, you're a bigamist. If you have three wives, you're a bigamist. If you have five wives, you're a bigamist. So what God is saying here is that the basic decision of life has to do with the fact that there must be a single, unique, undivided allegiance to God, monotheism, and to your husband or your wife, monogamy. And I want to say a word now which I will be uh, speaking to also uh, for the students, that's for all of us. I want to I want to talk about sexual morality for a few moments, and uh, I want to have come stand alongside me here today, if not in person, at least in name. Twenty-one people who constitute the Institute on Religion and Public Life. Now, these people, uh, I won't call all their names, though I don't mind you having a copy of this if you want it, and, uh, but let me tell you where they're from. These are, these are theologians, professors of law, uh, historians, and sociologists from the following places, at least I, I named some of them. Amherst College, Notre Dame Law School, University of Hartford, Boston College, Rutgers University, Princeton University, uh, College of St. Francis, Oberlin College, uh, Institute of Religion and Public Life, University of Religion, Princeton Theological Seminary, Berkeley Divinity School, Yale University, uh, the University of Virginia, and on and on and on. They wrote uh, this uh, article, which appeared in the Wall Street Journal, not a theological journal, the Wall Street Journal, four long columns on Thursday, February the 24th, 1994. Homosexual, and I quote from the article, and from these 21 people who worked long and hard on this statement. And a very erudite statement it is, and I'll read only portions of it. Homosexual behavior is a phenomenon with a long history to which there have been many various cultural and moral responses. But today in our public life, there is something new that demands our attention and deserves a careful moral response. While the gay and lesbian movement is indeed a new thing, its way was prepared by the so-called sexual revolution. That revolution is motored by presuppositions that ought to be challenged. Now hear this. Perhaps the key presupposition is that human health and flourishing require that sexual desire, understood as a need be acted upon and satisfied. Any discipline of denial or restraint has been depicted as unhealthy and dehumanizing. We insist, however, that it is dehumanizing to define ourselves by our desires alone. Marriage 
and the family, husband, wife, and children, joined by public recognition and legal bond, are the most effective institutions for the rearing of children, for the directing of sexual passions, and for human flourishing in community. In the current climate, it becomes imperative to affirm that reality and beauty, to affirm the reality and beauty of sexually chaste relationships. We do not accept the notion that self-command, self-control is an unhealthy form of repression on the part of single people, whether their inclination is heterosexual or homosexual. In a fallen creation, many quite common attitudes and behaviors must be straightforwardly designated as sin. Although we are equal before God, we are not born equal in terms of our strengths and weaknesses, our tendencies and dispositions, our nature and nurture. We cannot utterly change the hand we have been dealt by inheritance and family circumstances, but we are responsible for how we play that hand. Inclination and temptation are not sinful, although they surely result from humanity's fallen conditions. Sin occurs in the joining of the will freely and knowingly to an act or way of life that is contrary to God's purpose. Religious communities in particular most lovingly support all the faithful in their struggle against temptation while at the same time insisting precisely for the sake of the faithful on the sinfulness of the homogenital and extramarital heterosexual behavior to which some are drawn. It is necessary to discriminate between relationships. Gay and lesbian domestic partnerships, for example, should not be socially recognized as the moral equivalent of marriage. Marriage and the family are institutions necessary for our continued social well-being in an individualistic society that tends to liberation from all constraint. They are fragile institutions in need of careful and continuing support. God intended us to have one God and one husband and one wife. You divide life, our relationship to God and the family. You divide that. You have divided the foundation of the faith and of civilization. And if it's divided there, it crumbles.
the whole house crumbles. Seek first the kingdom of God. You will have no other gods before me. And then he tells a story. He said in the final verses of the seventh chapter of the book of Matthew and the conclusion of his Sermon on the Mount. Let me read it to you from, it it reads so well from this translation. These words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life, homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to build a life on. If you work these words into your life, you are like a smart carpenter who built his house on solid rock. Rain poured down, the river flooded, a tornado hit, but nothing moved that house. It was fixed to the rock. But if you use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you're like a stupid carpenter who built his house on the sandy beach. When the storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. When Jesus concluded his address, the crowd burst into applause. They'd never heard teaching like this. It was apparent that he was living everything he was saying, quite a contrast to their religion leaders and teachers. This was the best teaching they had ever heard. It's interesting to notice in this story that Jesus told that he did not base a person's wisdom or foolishness or stupidity on the basis of of, uh, where they built. Because he's saying wherever you build, whether you build in the mountains or on the beach, the storms are going to come. You can't avoid the storms. The rain's going to come in both places. It's not location that makes the difference between a wise man and a foolish man, between a stupid builder and an intelligent builder. And it's not primarily the materials out of which you build, whether you're a housewife, a teacher, businessman, a physician, military person, whatever. He does not differentiate between wise and foolish on the basis of the materials. It's a rather simple statement. You've heard it. <coughs> Excuse me, worth hearing again. He bases the difference between a wise man and a foolish man on the basis of the foundation upon which he builds. You build upon the rock, singular, the only. You build your life there. And you build your family there, your marital relationship there, not divided, not unfaithful, singular in devotion to God and to her or to him. You're wise in the sight of God. And your faith and your home will be able to take the storm. 
And I will say this to the students when they come in the next service. What is reputed to be a true story of a father who invited his son into his office. The father was a building contractor, a successful one. His son was working with him and worked together for a number of years. And the father said to his son, he said, son, you've been, we've been building houses together now for a long time. It's time you built one on your own without any counsel or advice from me. And so I have here a sum of money that I'm going to give you. It will cover the building of the house. And any money that you happen to have left over, you can keep. That will be your pay. I'm giving you the house. So the boy started building the house. And ringing in his ears were the words, the money you save will be yours. So he decided to cut corners. Use shabby equipment enough to pass the building inspector, but he knew it was inferior. All down the line, he cut corners, cut corners, cut corners, pocketed the money. Finished the house. Externally, it looked good. Walked into his father's office. and said, well, Dad, I finished the job. House is completed. He put the keys over on his father's desk. There are the keys. Father said, uh, well, you, you apparently did well. You did it in record time. Did you do a good job? Oh, yes, sir. I, I think I did a pretty good job. Uh, did you do your best? Well, uh, yes, sir. I, I guess so, most of the time. Father was a little apprehensive about the ambivalence of his son's response. He said, I'm a little concerned. Did you really put your best into that house? And the boy said, well, maybe next time I'll do better. Father said, son, there will be no next time. That was my money. And it's your house. And you're going to live in it the rest of your life. Here are the keys. And he threw them to him. You've got one life to build. There is no second chance. He's given you the gift of life. Build it on the rock. Maybe you need to begin your life on a new foundation this morning. Maybe you need to begin your family's recommitment to the foundation that is safe and secure. A singular commitment to God and to each other. Or to come be a part of a church that's endeavoring to incorporate in all that it does the words of our Lord and try to translate into ministries and programs and fellowship all that he taught 
and all that he was. Inadequately, of course. Imperfectly, of course. But sincerely and with devotion, with an eye and a heart for pleasing God, our great Lord. Would you come? I'll be here to greet you and welcome you as you come to the Lord and are into the fellowship of his church. May we stand, may we sing.